0: And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter eight. Luke chapter eight. We'll be looking at verses forty through fifty-six. This is our certainty in a world of doubt teaching series. And this weekend we're talking about patience. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along They're part of the intro. Three big questions. Maybe you've faced these questions before. I certainly have. I'm sure you have probably too. Maybe you didn't put them quite like this. But how do you hold on to your faith when, when God doesn't make sense? How do you hold on to your faith when God doesn't make sense? Here's another question. What do you do when life doesn't go as you had hoped it would? Anybody out there ever feel like that? Show of hands, show of hands, yeah. Plenty of us, a lot of us. Why is life going in this direction? I thought God was in control of my life. I thought he loved me. I thought that he was wise. And in fact, that's the next question. What do you do when circumstances seem to contradict God's love, wisdom, and power? When it just kind of spins your head around and you're going, what is this all about? Why is this happening? Now, there's a couple different reasons why people defect from the faith. One is that they become deceived by the the pleasures of life, actually thinking that the pleasures of life will be greater than the pleasures of God. That's not true. It's not true. That's one reason why people defect from the faith. Another reason is that people defect from the faith because they become disillusioned, disillusioned by the perplexities of life. Things just don't make sense to them and they're wondering where is God in all of this? This doesn't make any sense to me. And I've seen people defect from the faith as a result of that. What do we need when we go through difficulties? Right here, we need patience, it's on your notes there. We need staying power, we need stamina, we need strength. Patience is love that endures under difficult circumstances without giving up or giving in to worry or bitterness. So sometimes, you know, sometimes we just throw in the towel, we give up, or sometimes we give in, beware of that, we give in and we begin to worry over the things that are happening to us, and and many times that can lead us to bitterness. Now, Galatians 5.22 tells us that this is the work of the Holy Spirit, it's really the fruit of the Spirit, patience is one of many of those that the, the Holy Spirit produces in us, love, joy, peace, patience. So you know that the Holy Spirit is working in you when you have this staying power, this patience. And, but it also tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, that love is what, anybody know? Love is patient, that's part of the definition. It kind of works through this definition of what love is. So, love, so patience is love that endures under difficult circumstances without giving up or giving in to worry or bitterness. Need that this morning? I do. And uh, there, there will be a time in your life you're gonna need that. And so that's where we're headed. You can see in the uh, sermon notes, we're gonna talk about really some truths about God's delays and denials, when we struggle through that. And that doesn't make much sense. We're gonna learn also lessons that we can learn from his delays and denials in our lives. And then we'll finish up by talking about how to be patient, how we can have that staying power, stamina, and strength through, through the perplexities of life. But let's first pray. Would you bow your heads with me? and then we will read our text and unpack our notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. Because of your great love, we are not consumed. For your compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. It's easy to trust you God, until adversity strikes, until difficulty strikes our lives, and then we begin to question your love, your wisdom, and your power. Give us strength. Give strength to the weary this morning. Increase the power of the weak. Teach us how to live by faith and not by sight. Enduring under difficult circumstances without giving up or giving in. May we love you, our faithful and high God, and others over the long haul. We pray in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name and everyone said amen. Amen. Take a look at this text, now let's begin reading and I'm gonna explain a little bit as we go. I think there's some cultural context that you're gonna need to have to understand this uh, text. But uh, starting in chapter eight, verse 40, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Stop there just for a minute. This is really peculiar because no synagogue ruler, let alone scribe or Pharisee, would have ever bowed down to Jesus' feet, at his feet, because they despised Jesus. They didn't like him at all. They felt threatened by him. And here's a guy, obviously, you're going to see the next part of that sentence is that he's really desperate. He's terribly desperate. Why is he so desperate? Why is he falling at Jesus' feet? And he implored him to come to his house, why? Verse 42, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now let that land on you just for a moment here. It's a, it's a parent's worst nightmare to, to lose a child, it's, and every parent knows it, it's almost unbearable to watch a child suffer. Would you agree with that as parents? You're just like, oh, my goodness. You would, you would trade places in a heartbeat with that child. I was talking to a guy last night, and he said that was, that was what he experienced. He experienced overwhelming fear when his uh, daughter uh, had the diagnosis of uh, brain cancer. And he's, he has battled fear over that and struggled with that. This is where this guy is, Jairus ruler of a synagogue, bowing down at Jesus' feet. Please come to my home and heal my 12-year-old daughter. She's dying, and as Jesus went, so okay, so now Jesus is headed over to his house. He's gonna head over to his house and heal his daughter. And I'm sure that he can't move fast enough for this gyrus. He's like saying, okay, Jesus, come on, come on, come on, come on. This is a 911. I want you to get over here and heal her. But notice what happens verse 43. As, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. That's the last part of verse 42. And then verse 43. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. By the way, this is a terrible A very terrible stigma and shame in this culture. She was considered an outcast, couldn't even come in and and in the context of community, her family members had to stay away from her. She couldn't go uh, to the synagogue, she couldn't go to the temple because of this. And notice uh, what uh, Dr. Luke says, he's the guy that's writing this. He says, and though she had spent all of her living on Physicians. She spent all of her money on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. I find this a bit interesting and actually a bit humorous because it gives you a kind of a little personal side of Dr. Luke because actually Mark uh, describes it a little bit differently here of this woman's condition. Actually, Mark chapter 5 verse 26, Mark says that she had suffered much under many physicians. Dr. Luke doesn't put it like that, okay? He's trying to protect, you know, his fellow colleagues from being looked down on. So, I mean, it's just a little bit of a humorous part of this, knowing that these are eyewitness accounts, and so Luke's going to change it a little bit here. And so, he says, she spent all of her living on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. And Mark says, she suffered much under many physicians, And then verse 44, she came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. It's like, what? Everybody's bunched up, and they're really close to you. Everybody's touching you. So, you can kind of see this scenario here. He's like, what are you talking about? Somebody touched you. Everybody's touching you. And, uh, but Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and now she had been and how she had been immediately healed all oh, these next words are unbelievably tender wonderful words and and he said this is Jesus and he said to her daughter daughter your faith has made you well go in peace shalom those are great words daughter daughter let that land on you just for a moment She has the delight of the only eyes in the universe that matter. And those words had to have echoed in her soul the rest of her life. Believe me, I mean, she was healed. She was healed body, soul, spirit. She was healed in her body, there's no doubt about it. She's healed spiritually. She now has this amazing relationship with the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, but she was healed in her soul. She was an outcast. She had never heard more dear words spoken to her from the creator of the universe, daughter. Those are the words that we need to hear ringing in our soul. Believe me, if you hear those words ringing in your soul, it doesn't matter whether you're healed or not, you can face anything. So the, the word, obviously, you know, the very first verse that came to mind for me with this was uh, my favorite. You hear me quote it a lot. First John, First John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We're his children. And if I'm a child of the most high God, the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth, he's gonna take care of me. He loves me. No one has ever adored me more. See, those are the words. That's so rich. Now, I'm sure during this time, you've got to keep in mind, we've got to flash back to Jairus now. Jairus is going, come on already. What's going on? Why are you delaying for this? This gal's had this issue for 12 years. This is a chronic issue. Mine is acute. Mine's 911 worthy. What are you doing here? I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I certainly have. I've gone into the hospital room. I've gone into hospice before and watched People as they struggle over their loved one dying of cancer, wondering, "God, are you going to either heal him or take him home? Do something here. What's happening? Why are you delaying? Why would you deny our request?" This is Jairus. That's what he's struggling with. There's something deep going on here. He's just saying, "Oh my goodness, I, I asked you to come, and you, what are you delaying here? Let's get going." Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Oh, that, that rocked his world. He said there was hope, but no more. There's no more hope. It's over. It's over. Jesus, why did you delay? What, what are you doing? Remember what I said, that people oftentimes will defect from the faith for two reasons. And one of those reasons is that just the perplexities of life. This doesn't make any sense. I thought you were going to come. I, th- I, I thought you promised to come and heal my, my daughter. And now you've delayed. Notice how Jesus responds, verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. Now, you're going to... The reason for this is because... Look at the next verse. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now she, had, she actually is dead, okay? But he's actually redefining death for us. I think it's a wonderful redefinition of, of death from God's perspective. It's It's sleeping. It's just sleeping. How many are going to take a nap this afternoon when you get home? <laughs> that's, so, when you, just before you go out, just say, that's what, that's what death is. That's how the Bible defines death for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. It's just you just go to sleep, and then you wake up into the arms of the, the one who, who loves you and adores you. That's, that's death for those of us that are believers. So he's kind of redefining that. But, but one of the reasons why he took just Peter, James, and John, and then the mom and the dad in there with him is because these Jewish funerals were really quite different from uh, our kind of funerals. Our funerals were very quiet, organ music playing in the background, um, very sober, very somber events. Whereas Jewish funerals, it was just absolute hysteria. There are three ways that they would express their grief. One is that they would rip their clothes so I guess before you'd go to a funeral, you'd pick out an outfit that you wouldn't ever wanna wear again. And uh, say, so I think I'm not gonna wear that anymore. I think I'll take that one so I can rip it and then, I don't know, that's the first thing that came to mind for me. Maybe I shouldn't have been thinking like that, but, but that's what they would do. Typically, the parents would rip it over their heart to show that their heart is ripped out. For those of, uh, that were others, uh, would rip it somewhere around that area. Another thing that was uh, common in these Jewish funerals was there was this dissonant shrill flute playing and then uh, the third thing here was that they would hire professional mourners, who would weep and wail and scream. Typically women, because they are more effective at that. And uh, <laughs> no, no, listen, I wasn't. Because because they have a higher sh- sh- shrilly kind of voices. Okay, that's the reason why. It was it was meant to be a funny. It was it really was. Please no no emails over that one. Okay, <laughs> all the guys out there going, yeah, you're right with that one, man. <laughs> Weeping, wailing. <laughs> Sorry, I won't laugh. I won't stand there much longer here. Let's move on. And so that's why he just he wants to quiet the the bunch. In fact, what's interesting is that uh, they wouldn't Im- embalm the body, so Im- imme- the funeral would take place almost immediately. So she was already dead. They've already started the the, the funeral. And so it's just so noisy, almost this mass hysteria with the weeping and wailing. He just says, no, you're not going in there with me. So he goes in with Peter, James, and John, mom and dad. And it's very, very tender here. I love it. Notice this, though, before we go into the room here. Notice this. You can see that they're probably hired professional wailers and weepers because they go from wailing and weeping to laughing almost scorning Jesus, because he says to them, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. So kind of scorning him. But here's the tender words right here, verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat, and her parents were amazed. The word there literally means they were beside themselves. It was just like, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, wow. So, this is God's holy word to us this morning. So, we got some work to do. Here we go. God's delays and denials, here's the first fill in the blank, his schedule and strategy will often confuse us. So when we talk about God's delays and denials, his schedule and strategy will often confuse us. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, was a, has a daughter who is dying. He's desperate. He asked Jesus to come and, and heal her. Jesus is on his way to heal her and is interrupted. Now, as I said, he's interrupted by a chronic. This is chronic. It's been happening over 12 years, and he stops going to the acute issue, this little girl that's dying, and deals with the chronic issue. This is not just bad triaging on Jesus' part. It is malpractice. (laughs) And... uh, And what's fascinating about this is uh, I was thinking about a situation that happened to me when I was on with Phoenix Fire. I was a medic firefighter with Phoenix Fire. I was on 710, and uh, we were located up here at Station 41 right across the freeway here. You're probably familiar with it. We got a call. It was a heart attack. We were heading down Union Hills, and as we were heading down Union Hills going to heart attack, we heard a call come in of a house fire. And the house fire happened to be just right off of Union Hill. We could see the smoke coming from the... So our decision was, should we go to the heart attack or should we go to the house fire? Because you guys all know, maybe you don't know this, that firefighters love house fires. (laughs) Nothing better than a good old house fire. Now, that sounds weird, but... uh, I mean, And you want that out of the guys, that, guys and gals that fight the fires and do all of that. And so, so our decision was, uh, and, and there was no, uh, no life in danger with a house fire, but this guy, uh, certainly his life was in danger. And so we opted out because our captain made the choice to, uh, we're going to go to the heart attack. And it was a wise decision. But, but Jesus is making the opposite decision. He's almost like he's saying, I'm going to go to the house fire, and then we'll go to the heart attack. I mean, that's, that's what's happening. And so, it, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth. How high are the heavens above the earth? Anybody? Anybody calculate that recently? It's incalculable. Nobody knows. This is what he's saying, and that's the point. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are his thoughts above our thoughts and his ways above our ways. It's going to cause you to scratch your head and go, what is this all about? The Bible says, yeah, of course. He's God, you're not. It's not going to make sense. So his schedule and strategy will often confuse us. But, but in the midst of the confusion, you've got to always remember the next point on your notes. He is working lovingly, skillfully, and powerfully for our good in his glory for our good and his glory doing a thousand things we can't see with our finite minds. You need to always remember that. Always come back to that. In the perplexity of life, you've got to come back to this truth. Romans 8.28, for we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Job 42.2. Remember Job, the book of Job? It's a a book about suffering, but it's also a book about sovereignty, that God is good and he's in control. Job says at the very end of the book, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's pretty profound. And then just a few verses later, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I'd heard about you. I had a concept of you. I had a lot of information about you in my head. But now through this suffering, what I've gone through, now I've got you in my heart. I've had an experience with you that I wouldn't change it for anything. That's what he's saying. And what's fascinating about the story of of Job is that he never really saw why he suffered. He didn't see behind the scenes as we do as we read the book of Job. He never saw that. He never saw why he suffered, but he... Saw God, and that was enough. He saw God, and that was enough. God will never pursue His glory at the expense of your good, or pursue your good at the expense of His glory. And what, as as you look at your life, you're on the road to impatience. You're on the road to either giving up or giving in to worry and bitterness. When you begin to doubt the goodness of God's guidance, guidance, the wisdom of of God's timing, and the power of God's management of of your life. And that takes us to the next point in your notes. So that, that will create within you worry and bitterness. Here's how you would define worry and bitterness. Worry is belief that God will get it wrong. When we worry, we just, oh, I don't think that God's going to get this right. So, worry is belief that God will get it wrong. Bitterness is belief that God did get it wrong. Both are signs of impatience and therefore unbelief and pride. Pride basically is saying, Jesus, I know you're the eternal Son of God, creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, whose hands scattered the stars like seeds. You know the number of hairs on my head and you proved your love to me ultimately on the cross. But why should you know any better than me how my life should be going? That's pride. That's obvious pride. I mean, when you look at the vastness and the greatness and the beauty and the glory of who God is in light of us trying to navigate this life, he's smarter than you. He knows much more than you. And oftentimes when he's working in your life, it's not going to make any sense from your perspective. That's why we know it tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. And do not lean upon what? Yes. Yes, you know it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not, do not lean upon your own understanding. But in all your ways... Acknowledge him. That word acknowledge literally means cultivate, cultivate intimacy with him. And all your ways, acknowledge him. Oh, my goodness, nothing quite like intimacy with the creator of the universe. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He's got you by the hand. He will lead you through whatever you're going through. I love what J.R. Miller, 1903, Presbyterian pastor, author, says. He says, when we get to heaven... We shall know that God has made no mistake in anything he has done for us. However, he may have broken into our plans and spoiled our pleasant dreams. So let's talk about some lessons here. That has to do with uh, what we just talked about, God's delays and denials. That's what's true about God's delays and denials. What are some lessons here? Here's one lesson. God brings down the proud and lifts up the humble. It's fascinating when you do a contrast and comparison between Jairus and the woman. Jairus, male. uh, The woman, female, obviously, but what was interesting about this is that women were demeaned in that uh, culture, testimony, their testimony was not admissible in a court of law. Jairus, synagogue ruler, the woman ceremonially unclean, alienated from community. Jairus was rich, woman was poor, spent all of her money on doctors. Jairus was top of the social food chain, she was at the bottom. Jairus uh, had a higher quality of faith. She actually had a lower quality of faith because almost, almost kind of a superstition, she just thought, if I could just touch him, then everything's cool. He'll heal me. So he was highly respected. She was very much rejected in that culture. What does that teach us? It teaches us that that he is a God of grace. God is a God of grace, and his grace reverses the values of this world. You go through the Bible, and you'll see that God connects with outsiders, underdogs, marginalized, unpopular, quicker than he does insiders he's the god of the underdog so, so you can so it makes sense that he's going to say oh yeah that's an acute issue i understand that but i'm going to go towards more of the chronic issue here i'm going to deal with that and then i'll take care of that so he's got his own timing and his own se- sense of of values that, that work through that. I think there's also something here that's important is that no one is so good that they don't need God's grace, that's Jairus, nor so bad that they can't receive God's grace, that's that's the woman. Next point on your notes, whatever you give up to follow Christ is nothing compared to what you will gain. That's what we see in both of their lives. Both gave and received much more than they had planned. Whatever you give up to follow Christ is nothing compared to what you will gain. Now, let me walk you through both of these. Jairus was trusting enough to get Jesus to his home before his daughter died. But what did Jesus do? Jesus demands he trust him after her death. See, he allowed the circumstances to get so beyond this dire condition to where it was almost like it was hopeless. And Jesus allowed that to happen. He will typically push us out and allow us to be pushed out to the limits. But he'll give us much more. Jairus came for a fever cure, but gets a resurrection. The woman with the issue of blood wanted to, <laughs> she just wanted to touch and run. She just wanted, if I could just touch, I'm gone. I'll be healed. Everything's cool. Jesus forces her to go public. Now, with both, here's the lesson. Don't come to me just to have your needs met. Come to me to have a life-transforming relationship with me. That was that's the big idea. That's one of the big ideas in this. No, and this is what you need to keep in mind. (laughs) If you haven't discovered this yet, I hope that you do. I hope you do before you defect. Because there's things gonna, gonna happen in your life that's gonna create a perplexity. But having him in your life, being with him is better by far than anything that you will ever, ever, ever get from him. There's a lot of great things that he does in our lives. There's no doubt about it. But nothing compares to having God in your life, to be in a personal relationship with the God of the galaxies who loves us, adores us, gave his life for us. Nothing, nothing competes with that. And if you have that, listen to me, you can face anything. You can face anything. When you hear ringing in your soul, you are my daughter, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased, that's enough. That is enough, that's amazing what that is. And when that that begins to really work in your heart and soul, here's the next thing on your notes. There are substantially important things you will learn about God and yourself no other way. Hate to tell you that, There's no other way that you can learn some pretty deep truths about yourself and God except through the perplexities of life. Romans 5, uh, 1 through 5, Romans 5, 1 through 5, he says, we rejoice in suffering. Okay, when was the last time you did that? We rejoice in suffering because it produces, and he goes through this list, it produces endurance, character, hope, God's love poured into our hearts, And so we just know that suffering brings God's presence like nothing else. He is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, why would the Bible say that? We already know that he's close to all believers, but but it says in Psalm 34, 18, that he is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There's a presence of God that those that have gone through suffering, that those that are going through suffering have that others don't have. It will teach you lessons about yourself and about God that there's no way that you can learn them any other way. So how can I have that level of, of staying power? How can I have that patience, that stamina, that strength in the perplexities of life? Here it is. How to be patient. Here's the next point in your notes. Proximity is not the same as reaching out. Reaching out and touching Jesus by faith. Proximity is not the same as reaching out and touching Jesus by faith. It's interesting here, and this is a strong warning for those of us who simply attend church. We must not think that church attendance, Bible study, the admiration of Jesus mean anything on their own. The crowd had all these things, but only the woman connected by faith. All of these people, these crowds were pressing in on Jesus, only one Only one reached out in faith and received something from Jesus. Now, I really believe there's a drastic difference between those who check the church box on the weekend or even throughout the week when they read their Bible and pray and hang out with other fired-up Christians in a small group. There's a drastic difference between those who check the box in all of those categories and those who really, really have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Don't you think that the ones that have an encounter with Christ, they're gonna respond to life quite a bit differently than those that aren't? Yes, absolutely. I mean, do you have God in your life or what? Have you put your faith in him? There should be a difference in your life and how you respond to the trauma of life and the difficulties of life and the perplexities of life. There should be an overwhelming sense that he's with me, he's for me, he loves me. He adores me, I'm gonna get through this. Does that make sense? Yes, Yes. okay, there's there's just a few of us that believe that this morning, don't we? Is there more here that believe that? I'm gonna push you and I'm gonna push you hard. You need to know this and not just know about it, it needs to be a reality in your heart. It's gotta be a reality. You're not gonna get through the difficulties, you're gonna throw in the towel. You're gonna give up. You're gonna give in to worry and bitterness. If his presence doesn't become a reality to you, if you don't live in the reality of his, not only just his presence, but his promises, his thousands of promises that he's given to us. You gotta cling to those. You gotta cl- She was hanging out. In fact, it's interesting. I didn't say this in any of the other services, it just came to mind as I was thinking about this, as I studied this out. When she grabbed a hold of him of his gar- garment, it was like a clinging. She grabbed it. She hung on to it for a while. That's why he almost felt something there. It was like, ah, you got to have that same tenacity when you come to church. Oh, God, I need to meet with you. And, And don't wait until you're going through hard times. Do it before, and then you'll be prepared for the hard times. Does that make sense? Do it now. Make him the love of your life, the treasure of your life. And what she's really teaching us here and what we really understand is that so so proximity is not the same as reaching out and and touching Jesus by faith. Faith is applying the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done specifically to where your heart is most restless. That's why I love the story that we talked about last week. You can go back and listen to it online. But in Luke 8.25, remember the, the storm that the disciples were in? They were panicked. And that's the assessment of guys that are are used to storms, but they thought they were going to die. And what does Jesus say? He says, where's your faith? You got faith. Get it out. Start using it. Start thinking out the implications of what you believe is true about Jesus and apply them specifically to where you are most restless and, and stressed and anxious and worried. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? You must think out the implications of your faith as it relates to whatever it is that you are struggling with. It is letting Jesus meet us right where we are. Why would I ever worry about being left alone or forsaken if my Savior has made me the place where he dwells? Why would I ever worry about facing difficulties or suffering if my Savior will not only walk with me, but will also use all things for my good in His glory? That makes sense? You guys tracking with me? You guys with me? Okay, don't, don't make me have to come out there after you, okay? Okay. I love you guys. This is a I think I'm preaching to myself here this morning. No, I'm preaching to, okay, thank you. I know you guys, I'm preaching, I'm preaching to you guys too, but uh, you guys are, I'm preaching to me too. I need this. I need this as much as you need it. God's glory and my goodness, my good, that's the next point on your notes. God's glory and my good satisfaction are mutually inclusive endeavors regardless of circumstances. Now let me ask you this, why are you here? Not here, a desert breeze, but why are you on this planet? (laughs) Why do you draw air into your lungs? Why do you exist? You exist. You were created by God for God to give glory to God. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Before your feet hit the floor every morning, the first thing that should come to mind more than anything is how you can find your deepest satisfaction in him. Because that's what you were created for, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your circumstances, you can fulfill that, you can live for his glory and find your deepest satisfaction. By the way, there's no set of circumstances out there that can satisfy you like he can. But see, if you're putting all your sense of, you know, all your sense of happiness in your circumstances, I mean, here's, here's what I put down on my notes, if rainy days and Mondays get you down, then you're building your life on your circumstances rather than on the glory of God. Build your life on the glory of God. Find your deepest satisfaction in Him. And regardless of how things go, you can still live for His glory. In fact, people will look at your life and go, my goodness, I want what you have. What do you have? Because I, you're going through some really difficult times, and yet you seem to have a, a joy. It's not based on your circumstances. See, if you, if, you, if you can't live without it, if you can't live without it, whether it be a marriage, career, kids, home, if you can't live without it, you'll never safely be able to live with it. I said this last weekend when we talked about storms. Build your life on the temporal, and suffering will take it from you. Build your life on the eternal God, and suffering will drive you deeper into His love. Here's our last point. God is the ultimate parent who takes us by the hand and leads us through the most difficult circumstances. That's what we see in verse 54. He takes Jairus' daughter by the hand and says, Child, arise. Kind of like waking your child from an afternoon nap. I said that last night and someone told me, except for a teenager trying to wake them up, Okay. And so maybe you you understand what he meant by that. Here's the point. If Jesus has you by the hand, even the greatest enemy of all, death, is nothing more than just a good night's sleep. He will bring you through the darkest night of your life happy, refreshed, and safe. Now, let me share with you a quick story. And then we'll end and we're going to do some baptisms here this morning. But nothing more frightening than for a child to lose their parent's hand in a crowd. A number of years ago, my kids, uh, our oldest Russ was six, the next oldest was Ryan, he was about four, and our natty girl, she was about two, two and a half, somewhere around there. We decided to do some crazy thing. We piled everybody in our station wagon, drove across the United States of America to Disney World. And uh, it was a little bit kind of like the movie Vacation, the Griswold family driving across the US to go to Wally World. So we drove, we packed everybody up, went across to Disney World, got there, and it was closed. No, it wasn't. I'm just kidding. But while we were there, just crazy, it's just major chaos there, just tons of people. Uh, It starts raining there in Orlando, Florida, and so Nancy says, hey, watch the kids here and I'm going to go and get some kind of slickers, some uh, rain ponchos and just watch the kids and then I'll be right back. So she went and she came back and the first thing she did, she did a quick count and she goes, where's Ryan? And I go, he's right here. Here, somewhere around here, she looked at me and she says, I told you to watch them. And I said, I told them to keep their eye on me. (laughs) And she had that look on her face that they would have never been able to find my body. (laughs) It was almost kind of like, if we don't find him, I'm going to kill you. And um, and obviously this was during a time when we you know, with little kids and there had been some recent abductions of kids and we were sick to our stomach. We started looking around, it's just massive people, and where's Ryan? Where's Ryan? And so we're all like, oh, we're almost there's almost a panic over both mom and dad. And our little six year old son Russell said, How about if we pray? And mom and dad look at each other and go, that's a great idea. Kind of like, ah. So we all held hands, prayed, because we didn't know which direction to go. There's 360 degree different directions we could go. So we prayed, we got up, and then we began to head over the bridge, over th- towards the castle, and here comes our little Ryan in hand with a Disney World employee in hand as he's walking with him to us. Oh, my goodness. It was like, Ah. Oh. Talk about major relief for a parent. I don't know if you've ever gone through that kind of panic before, but it was just, it was overwhelming. And this is what you need to know. You need to know this, that Jesus. Jesus lost his father's hand. Jesus lost his father's hand on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could be guaranteed that if he has us by the hand, he will never, ever, ever let go of our hand. He will never let go of our hand. Why would you want to be impatient with someone who loves you like this? He knows what he's doing. He loves you completely. You can trust him. If you're here this morning, you've never made a confession of faith, we would love to help you to do that. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I would invite you to acknowledge your sin that separates you from God, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and then confess him as Savior. Give your life to him. And then, as we baptize a number of folks here this morning, what they're doing is they're making a public declaration of their faith in Jesus and what Christ has done. Like this little girl, this little 12-year-old, as Jesus grabbed her by the hand and, and said to her, child, arise. He did that physically, but he does that to us spiritually. And we enter into a whole new life in Christ, having a relationship with him. And, and that can happen to you today, this morning, if you will confess Christ as your Savior. And then we'd love to baptize you. We'd love to celebrate that with you. We'll give you opportunity to do that in a moment. But would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, thank you for the gospel, the good news that you have reconciled us to yourself by sending your son Jesus to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. I pray for those that need to do that, maybe for the first time here this morning and others that need to renew that commitment. God, we know that, that that salvation means that all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. They're all forgiven. Our present problems can be overcome because you take us by the hand and lead us you lead us never to leave us or forsake us. And it also means that our future in heaven is secure with you for all eternity. I pray your blessing, your total fulfillment, your complete well-being over those now who are making this public declaration of their faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. If you're gonna get baptized.